earn the favor. So let me give you some common ways God is trivialized today. One is God of my cause. Um, there was a theology that arose in, around my lifetime when I was younger called feminist theology. Feminism was the cause and the God of heaven was to help with that cause. Liberation theology was the same thing. Social justice is the cause and God is on my side. Now there's theology to justify gay marriage. And it doesn't matter if the cause is good or bad. The starting point is wrong where you begin with the cause and then reconceive God accordingly. God's a feminist or God is a social anarchist or whatever the cause may be. There's God of my understanding. This is an attempt to fit God into my theological system. God is a Calvinist or an Arminian or God is a charismatic or a Baptist or a you know, Christian church God. God is what my theological system tells me he is. When I was younger, I just knew that if Jesus were alive today, he would go to the Christian church because he agrees with us the God of my understanding. Another trivial God is God of my experience. God is what I feel. Don't confuse me with doctrine or facts or logic or the Bible. I had an experience, and so it must be true. Or this attitude is expressed when someone says, I haven't worshiped unless I've been touched in the heart. I call this the goosebump God. You know, we relegate God to the sphere of feelings, and He's a great dispenser of warm fuzzies and spiritual highs. And if I don't get my goosebump God here, I'll go somewhere where I can get it. There's God of my comfort. God's job is to make my life better, to meet my needs. And instead of calling people to self-surrender and obedience that leads to a cross, which means I have to die to myself, we seek a God who will be my assistant, my personal maid or butler. Uh, we want to be happy and we expect God to make it so. God is like a giant aspirin. Take God three times a day and you'll feel better. It's God of my success. Here are some Christian book titles. You can find in a bookstore, Christian bookstore, The Law of Prosperity, How to Write Your Own Ticket with God, Wall Street Gospel, How God Taught Me About Prosperity, God's Plan for Financial Prosperity, Living in Divine Prosperity. In this one, God is a crass materialist. God wants you to be rich and wants you to be successful. There's God of my nation. How often have we heard exhortations to get this country back to its Christian roots? We must reclaim our God-given status as a light to the nations. And I tend to agree with some of those sentiments. However, in 1776, 17% of Americans were involved in church. Is that where we want to go back to? We are not a Christian nation, even though our foundation comes from some Christian worldview and uh, Christian values. God is not a Republican, and He's not a Democrat, never has been, never will be. He is the only true independent. I would call this the Rush Limbaugh view of God. We need God, and we need the church to make America great. His God is a God that serves the needs of the nation. There's God of my family. God's job is to help raise my kids to see that we have nice, moral, unified family, and we see families get involved in the life of the church, and then, you know, when the kids are growing up, because God will help them learn morals and give them a foundation and give them, get them socialized in a safe setting. You know, kids need a moral compass because the world is going nuts, and so I'll drop my kids off at Big Wednesday, and God will help them become better kids. But mom and dad really don't submit to God as their Lord. He's, he's just another teacher for my kids. God's a nanny. And there's others, God of my morality, God is about behaving and following rules, or God of my Bible, God is a book or an intellectual stimulus. And all these are ways we use and control and trivialize the creator of all. Historically, the church has taught that the chief end of people is to glorify God. Today, we have reversed it 
to say the chief end of God is to gratify people. We want to tame God, a God we like, a God we can control and we enjoy, a God who never confronts us, never disciplines us, a God for whom I'd never have to change my lifestyle, a God who would never ask me to do unpleasant things or sacrifice or demand too much of me, a God who would never ask me to change my mind or thinking, and the result is a tepid, sort of, kind of, nominal, almost meaningless religion and faith. The Bible calls it idolatry. It is the worst sin in the church just as it was the worst sin for God's people in Bible times. Now, we've been in Psalms this summer, and so far we've looked at a wisdom psalm, a lament psalm, an enthronement psalm, and last week, last week a psalm of confession. Psalm 98 this week is a victory psalm, likely sung after a military battle. It's also a worship psalm. And when I look at this worship psalm, and I think about worship today, there seems to be some differences, and and those differences is not necessarily in the style of music or the use of instruments or the structure of the building or the form of the service, and all those are important. That's not the basic difference. The difference that I see is the view of God. This guy worships a different God than most do. When we trivialize God, it affects our worship. When God is domesticated, worship becomes less meaningful and less important and, frankly, optional. For many who claim to follow Christ, worship is just not all that important. But that is not the case in Psalm 98. Worship is not optional if God is who God claims to be. If the God of the Bible is really God, then worship is central to our lives. Worship is expedient. I have to worship this God. Paul said in Romans 12, in view of God's mercies, because of what it is God has done for us, off your bodies as living sacrifice. Now, your whole being is to be worshiped to him. And I'm convinced the more we know about this God and the more we encounter him, the more we let God be God, the more we delve into him, the more our lives will be characterized by awe and wonder and service and gratitude and celebration and fear. I'm also convinced the more we get to know this God, the more we'll become agnostic. I said that once to someone, they said, what? Not agnostic in that we don't know if there is a God, but agnostic in the sense that we realize we don't know 1% of what there is to know about him. If God were the ocean, our knowledge of him would be a thimble full of water. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great theologians in history, wrote 38 treatises, 3,000 articles, and 10,000 entries in his Summa Theologica, considered one of the greatest intellectual achievements of Western civilization. He wrote volume after volume about God, and then in December 6, 1273, he quit. Just like that. He had had a profound worship experience in a worship service, and he announced to his secretary he could write no more. He said, everything I've written about God is like straw. Karl Barth, considered the greatest theologian of the 20th century by many, wrote twice as much as Aquinas, and he imagined entering heaven with a pushcart full of his books and hearing the angels laugh at him. He said he could dump his books on the floor, on the heavenly floor, as a pile of waste paper. Now, those are two of the greatest theologians of all time, the theological minds of all time, and they realized after studying and reading and learning and contemplating and writing about God for years, they knew nothing. A thimble full of ocean water. The more you know, the more you realize you don't know. I cannot comprehend his love. It's too much. I cannot fathom his greatness. I cannot understand this God. Now, here's the paradox. The more ignorant we are, 
the more we think we handle, have, have, have a handle on God. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know about God. You know, my God doesn't do this. My God. And ignorance is in big supply today, you know. And we fit him into these boxes and say, yeah, God believes pretty much like I do. The people who do know God on a personal basis and contemplate Him and study and they realize they know very little and those are the ones that have a sense of awe and wonder and mystery and celebration and realize I've only got a thimble full of ocean here. And worship is a natural response. Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made His salvation known and revealed His righteousness to the nations. He has remembered His love and His faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp. With the harp and the sound of singing. With trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. This psalm breaks down very nicely into three stanzas as it celebrates three attributes of God, three understandings of God that should lead anyone to worship. The first three verses, there's one word repeated in all three verses, and that's the word salvation. We praise God our Savior for what He's done in the past. The psalmist looks to the past, saving events of God and His marvelous deeds, and he says, let's sing, let's worship. Now, we don't know what event or events he's talking about. It could be the Exodus or one of Joshua's battles or one of David's battles. It really doesn't matter. This psalm can be used to praise God for one of the many times he had saved Israel. We could imagine that we're with Moses. You just crossed the Red Sea. You've seen 10 unbelievable plagues. You've seen miracle after miracle. You've been brought out of mud and slavery and out of the misery of Egypt after 400 years. You're free. You're going to a place of milk and honey. How do you react? Wouldn't you think there'd be celebration? Wouldn't you sing? Wouldn't you worship God for the deliverance? You couldn't help but to worship that God. You wouldn't have to stop and think, now, should we go to worship today? No, Moses starts to sing. Miriam sings. The people rejoice. Or let's say you've been a Christian in Iran and you've suffered, you've seen family members suffer, and some even die. You've been mocked and beaten, and you see no hope for the church in Iran. You eventually die, and you're ushered into a new kingdom. Jesus has come, and the earth is remade and renewed. There's no more pain or sorrow or war or hate, and you are standing with a multitude of people and millions of angels surrounding the throne of God, and you know you don't deserve to be there because no one deserves to be there, and yet you're going to be there forever. Would you sing? You think? Would you celebrate? If there isn't joy, celebration, because of our salvation, something's wrong. If we get to heaven and don't celebrate, maybe it's because they made a mistake and sent us to the wrong place. How can we not celebrate God, our Savior? The psalmist says, sing a new song. New song because God is fresh and new every day. We, we get new insights and new appreciations and new deliverance day after day, so sing new songs for God, our Savior. Second stanza, to shout to the Lord, make music to the Lord. And then verse 6 is kind of a crescendo of this second stanza. Shout before the Lord, the King. We praise God, our King, who reigns in the present. He is the Lord, the sovereign, the ruler. And when we worship, we acknowledge His kingship and our submission to Him. Every time we trivialize God, we deny His kingship. 
We reverse roles and we become the king and he becomes our servant. This is a huge obstacle to praise. It does not make sense to worship a God that you control or a God that you have contrived. The word worship means worthy of praise. And is a God I make worthy of my praise? No, because I made it. I'm the creator and he's the creature. And the creator does not worship the creature. It's like idolatry in the Old Testament. They made wood carvings to represent God. And the, the prophets asked, are these wood carvings worthy of adoration? Of course not. A trivialized God, a God that we use, a God that we control and we create, is not a God that inspires worship. There's no awe or mystery or agnosticism. If we are to have real worship, we need the real God. Now, the praise gets louder in these middle verses. Shout, burst into jubilant song and music. It's a noisy stanza. Sing, singing and harps and tram, trumpets and ram's horns, and we're all to join in praising this God. By the way, you know in the Bible we are never commanded to sing quietly. Never. Always told to sing loudly. No. Now, I don't think it's wrong to sing softly, but Christian worship should always have an element of victory and so jubilation. After a brilliant conductor finished conducting a performance of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the audience spontaneously jumped to its feet and started applauding, shouting its delight. But the conductor waved his hands violently for them to stop. And he turned to the orchestra and he shouted, You are nothing. And then he pointed to himself and said, I am nothing. And he shouted, Beethoven is everything, everything, everything. And every once in a while, I think we need someone to stand up, if you dare, and say to the praise team, You are nothing. And to the instrumentalists, You are nothing. And to the drummers, You are nothing, because drummers are pretty arrogant. And to preach... And to the preacher, you're nothing because they're more arrogant than drummers. And to the elders and to the congregation, you are nothing. God is everything. He is the king. We're the servants. Let that sink in. Uh, what are the implications of that? When a king is present, what do you do? You honor him. When the king speaks, what do we do? We listen. When the king commands us, what do we do? We do whatever he says. We're the servants. He is the king. And then 7 through 9, we praise God, the judge, who comes in the future. Verse 9, let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Usually we think of worshiping God for his salvation and his gifts and his goodness. But here and in the book of Revelation, a lot of it in Revelation, worship surrounds God, the judge. And praises God for being a judge. Now, this is another way where many people trivialize God. Well, God doesn't judge. God wouldn't do that. God's a nice God. And God, that God told us not to judge. And that's true. God told us not to judge. But you know why? Because that's his job. And let me ask, would a God who did not care about the difference between right and wrong be worthy of our worship? Would a God who put no distinction between the Hitlers and the Mother Teresas be morally praiseworthy? Hebrews 12 says, Offer to God an acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for indeed our God is a consuming fire. He is going to judge this world. And there's an ever-increasing crescendo throughout this psalm. The praise gets even louder and louder in, this, in these last stanza. And now the rivers are clapping their hands, the mountains are singing, the whole universe joins in, nature is worshiping. In Romans 8 says, Creation yearns for the coming judgment of God waits in eager expectation, anxiously waiting God's final destruction of sin. So 
It can be liberated. And so we can be liberated too, you and, you and I. And someday evil will be conquered and destroyed because God is a judge. Thank you for being a judge. Are you amazed as I am when you read a text like this that worship has turned into an option? Something that stands for life and joy and is everything to us and we make it an elective. We take victory, we don't celebrate. We take salvation and we yawn. How did Satan do that? And I'm not talking about faking enthusiasm. I'm not even talking about the style of worship. We're just talking about the heart. Are we really worshiping and praising God? Do we have any idea who this God is? The Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord. You know Family Feud, 100 people surveyed. One of the questions, name something boring. Hit the buzzer, church. Survey says, ding, 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 number one answer. How'd that happen? God is not boring. How did the church make God, how do we preachers make God boring? You know, look at his creation. Look at the colors and the variety and the beauty and the devastation his creation does and the vastness of it and the micro vastness of it. Look at humans that he created and the variety and, and the humor in, in creation. Sometimes I'm boring and sometimes the church is. God is not. And the answer, again, is not to fabricate enthusiasm. The answer is not to pretend we're excited. The answer is not even a perfectly planned, dynamic worship service. The issue is our view of God. It is human nature to reduce Him, trivialize Him so we can control Him. And He doesn't make us uncomfortable. To the Jew, God was so great, you don't mention His name. You never spoke the name of hmm. Why? Third commandment. You shall not take God's name in vain. And just to be sure, we're not even going to say it. The worship instructions in Leviticus read like a manual on handling radioactive material. Do not touch the ark or you die. You bring only spotless lambs to God. You bring the best. If you don't, watch out. And no one enters the most holy place except the high priest, and he only once a year. And when he does, you fasten a rope around his ankle and a bell so that if he makes some mistakes and gets zapped, while inside and he falls, you'll hear the bell and you can drag his corpse out. That's the fear of God. There's 27 chapters of very meticulous instructions on how to approach this God. You do it exactly like this. I wonder if our view of God would be different if we were forced to go through a bunch of rituals before entering this building on Sunday morning. You got to wash your hands. Your garments have to be ceremonially cleansed. You have to make sure you're ready in every way to come into his presence. And if not, you will be struck dead if you walk in. You take that $40,000 prize winning bull at the prime of its life and you sacrifice it and the bull's blood will be sprinkled on our bodies and on our heads to show the cost of our sin, that yucky, sticky, grimy blood like our sins and there's blood stains on the carpet floor because of it and we have to make sure it's done explicitly right, the wood laid on the fire exactly right, the altar has to face the right direction, it has to be cut up just the right way and washed just the right way, any mistakes, you're done. I wonder if our view of God would be a little different. I wonder if we would trivialize that God, the God who holds the power of life and death in his hand. Oh, he does. That is the God we worship. Historians record that when the Babylonian soldiers entered the temple's inner sanctum, they swept the air with their spears, so great was their fear of the Hebrews' invisible God. To the Dead Sea community, Qumran, God was so holy and so great that the scribes washed their hands every time they wrote the name of God in their manuscripts. 
What did they know that we don't? Is there something about God that we've missed? Is that they were superstitious and mystical and were educated and sophisticated? Have we got him so concealed in our nice little package that there is no awe and there is no fear? Psalm 98 burst at the seams in its praising of this God. And there's triumph and there's gratitude, there's joy, there's confidence and celebration. Uh, it sounds like the winning locker room of the winning Super Bowl team. And that's what's happening in 98, Psalm 98. We win because of our God. Now, our God is not a tame God. He's not a safe God. He's not a boring God. When you read through Paul's letters, he's going along instructing the church, telling some things, and he'll just break out into doxology. Just praise God from all, all blessings flow. He can't help but to worship. He's our Savior. He's our King. And he's our Judge. This psalm, Psalm 98, is the Old Testament text for a Christmas carol we sing every year. You can figure out which one? Isaac Watts' Joy to the World, which celebrates the coming of the Lord to rule the world with truth and grace. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. All nature repeats the sounding joy. He rules the earth with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love and the wonders of His love. How can we not worship? How many of you know the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings. I'd like us to sing that. Let's stand. I want us to sing that. Just sing it a cappella here. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Lord, we stand in awe, and I pray we not lose that awe and the mystery of who you are and what you have done. God, you are our Savior, our King, and our Judge, and we cannot help but to worship you when we understand even a, a milli bit of this. We praise you. You are worthy of all our love, all our dedication, and all our worship. sing this out together this morning as we continue our worship together. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let Yeah. Hey.
world the Savior reigns because he does. Amen. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs in glory. While fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. morning from Psalm 84. Not all of it, just part of it. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, even the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, they will still be praising you. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Based on what Mark said this morning and what we all feel every day, it doesn't always feel this way. Um, the psalmist writes about how awesome and wonderful and glorious it is to live in the kingdom and in the courts of the Lord. And yet, oftentimes, as a human being, um, we get the opposite impression, um, that it's better to live in this world, of this world, and to do worldly things. The human response is to feel like the pleasures of this world are better than anything that God has to offer to us, better than the rules and the regulations that are handed down to us in Scripture. And I thought about this, and I thought about an analogy from my own life, and um, it comes from a question that I particularly get many, many, many times. I've gotten it four times already this morning, and it is, are you ready for school to start? And the simple answer is, yes, I am. Um, I'm, I'm a rarity in the school in that I'm pretty much ready for school to start the moment that school is over. 
Um, I enjoy school, and I enjoy um, the routine, and I enjoy my students and my coworkers, and I start the countdown for how many days are left until school starts about the same time that the students start the countdown for how many days are left until school is over. There are under 30 now, in case you're wondering. Um, but, but the way that this fits into my, my story and into this, into this psalm is that um, if you start asking anybody who works in school and any student who goes to school, at some point all of them are going to say, yes, I'm ready for school to start. And the reason is because they've gotten bored of the freedom, of all the spare time, of catering to their own wants and individual needs that summer brings. And they're ready for the routine. They're ready for the rules and the regulations. They're ready for someone who knows better than them to hand down wisdom to them. And that's exactly our relationship with God. We stray and we want this freedom and this joy and this awesome ability to do whatever we want. But in the back of our minds, we always know it's really better to do what it is that God has for us. Um, we're lucky because we have the ability to know the difference. Um, we're even luckier than the psalmist uh, because we're reading what he wrote in the A.D., which means that in addition to knowing that God is there, we have Jesus Christ, um, who lived and preached and shared the gospel and died and then rose again so that we don't have to suffer, so that we don't have to encounter pain eternal pain anyway. Um, this is the time in the service that we remember that God, like a parent or a school teacher, created rules to protect us, and failing that, he sent his son to die and raise from the dead for us. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the many things that you have given us, even for the rules and the regulations that we sometimes don't appreciate. But more than anything else, we praise you and we thank you for your son who you sent to live among us, to preach to us, to guide us, and to even die on a cross to bear our sins. We love you, we love him, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.
God, we love you. We can never thank you enough for sending your son to die for us, that we can be right with you again. God, in, in light of us recognizing this sacrifice, we have a time to give back. God, I pray that you will bless these tithes and these offerings into your kingdom because, God, we want to serve you with everything that we are. And you bless us with so much. Sometimes, God, things that we don't even realize. God, we want to worship you. I pray that you, you will receive these gifts and bless the gift and the giver. We want to serve you to the best of our abilities, God, and this is one way that we can do that. God, we love you and we thank you for Jesus. It's because of him that all of this is possible. It's because of him that we can worship you. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So oh. 